Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hello from Stoneville, Mississippi in the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio. Tom and I are here this afternoon with a special guest, Mr. Chris Bennett, who's a writer with Farm Journal. It's Chris, thanks for making the drive down and, and spend some time with us this afternoon. Jason, it's a privilege to be on here with y'all. With you and Tom, uh, I must confess, I am a subscriber to this podcast, so your reputation precedes y'all. <laughs> we certainly appreciate that. I don't know, Chris and I made initial contact about doing this sometime last year, and uh, we're just now getting around to making it happen this spring. Now, I guess this will be one of our Why Ag series, Tom, that we hadn't done in quite a while, so why don't you just kind of remind folks what that is and what you had in mind when we started doing a couple two or three of those last year that's just what i was going to say it's probably good to refresh everybody's memory so that would that came about when my wife broke her leg which to to give everybody the update she's about 95 percent back to normal at this point she ain't gonna run a marathon but much better but with that in mind we really wanted to touch on some individuals within agriculture who maybe didn't intend to do that from the beginning and then fell backwards into agriculture. And my, myself being one of those people in particular that I didn't start out with that intention. Uh, and we've interviewed a couple of folks that are, that are younger farmers and then have met some people along the way with, with that general intent to sit and discuss with them how they ended up in agriculture and what maybe they started out intending to do in the beginning, and then how that story really moved them into ag. And then, of course, you know, how, how we became friends with them or acquainted with them and, and got involved in having that conversation. I think that's pretty important. Chris, so when I've asked these questions over the past few weeks, we asked Whitney Crow what her favorite sitcom was. And, and she we crashed uh, and yeah, burned when that got She to, wouldn't tell us. Sitcom, what? What's and, that? And then we asked Cook what the greatest rock and roll song of all time was and got an interesting answer from that. When Travis Foskey came down, we asked him about action movies. That's right. And uh, so I guess I'm going to stay in that vein, Chris. Was TV better in the 80s, the 90s, or the 2000s? In, oh. like, in like 2000s, like 2000 to 2010. Uh, ain't no debate. It was better in the 80s uh, back when we worshipped that screen because we only had access to it for a limited amount of time. Shoot, you know, you look at something like Magnum P.I., what have you, yeah. you, you were tuned in and you were desperate to watch that episode because that's it. You had one window to watch, and once it blanked out, it was gone. Yep. So, Thank the Lord for YouTube today so we can go back and watch uh, Old Magnus or what have you. <laughs> I, and, I, and for those those <laughs> younger listeners that are listening, that would be the Tom Selleck version of Magnum, oh, yeah, right. which, which by far is much better than the Magnum reboot. I'm trying to think about those shows that were on in the late afternoon, like when you got home right. from school, right. that little window of time you had between school and when your mama would make you sit down and do your homework that you could watch. <laughs> I remember MASH being one of them. Then there were some old Western shows, probably Gunsmoke came on in that in that time slot too on, on some network. But you're right. I mean, we only had, I mean, we got three channels and occasionally we would get the, the uh, fourth channel, which I guess was... Fox. 
from Little Rock. I, I think it would come in occasionally. The weather probably had to be just just <laughs> right uh, for it to come in. Tom has no idea what we're talking about. No, that's why I'm kind of giving you that look. Uh, did you always have cable? <laughs> Oh boy, um, you're gonna date me. Well, no. Pro- pro- well, uh, maybe uh, legitimate question. Maybe, probably not. When I was really, really young, and we lived in the Columbus, Ohio area, I would imagine we did not have cable through the early years of the Allen residence. And back then, it was legitimate, though, much more than all those channels I get now that I still pretty much just watch the networks. Chris, and that's the thing that's fascinated me is. You grew up in Mississippi, so why don't you give us a little background on on Chris Bennett? Where where'd you yep. come from and grow up? Tom, let me that? let me throw you a curveball. Um, my people are actually from Southeast Arkansas, Phillips County, and I grew up partially there, and also in Arabia. My parents were missionaries, so we were back and forth actually in Jordan, between there and Phillips County, and pretty much that went on till till I went to college, and I ended up going to college at Missouri State. Southwest Missouri State at the time, which is in Springfield, Missouri, and got a history degree. Um, the reason I got a history degree before I even get to agriculture is strange because I was one of those kids that uh, my IQ is simply not that high. I couldn't keep up with the rest of the class in most topics. But whenever the teacher gave us something to read, I was well past the other kids. So I immediately recognized since first, second, third grade that for whatever reason, the Lord had given me the ability to collate information and read and write. I could do that. And so I was naturally always drawn to that. That took me initially down the path to a, a history degree. <laughs> well, and I think that's a discipline not a lot of folks venture into anymore because there is so much reading involved, which I, I have a history minor, so I, I feel you on that. That was I wanted something that wasn't science-based when I was an undergrad, and history just fit. For some reason, it's easy to me. I can read and stick those facts in the back of my head and then conceptualize time. We'll claim Phillips County. That's close enough. I mean, I'm from Chico County, so it's about the same difference. But I don't mean to hijack the history discussion, but you just kind of glossed over that swapping back between living overseas and living in Phillips County. That's a unique experience in itself. So tell us what your parents were involved in and then how that influenced your growing well, up years uh, strangely enough you know when you think of jordan arabia that general part of the world you think about sand and most of my growing up was pre it, it was just past the 1967 war so the, the, the echoes of war were still there but it was pre all of the wars that were to come so it was a little bit of a um, a, a, a pretty window in there we lived in the capital city of a man, and we lived outside town. So around us were nothing but fields. Some of them had wheat and barley, things like that. But around us were mainly fields, thorns. And we had almost, in this time, I was talking early 70s, so almost no technology around us. And so it was just a matter of going outside, spending your days outside. It had a massive effect on me and what uh, got into my core as far as being outdoors. I know it tied later in directly with agriculture. So I grew up with a lot of uh, reptiles, literally a lot of reptiles, chasing things like that when I was a kid. And my parents would come back every few years and we'd go uh, back to Phillips County 
And then after we stayed there for a while, my father, who simply is a God minister, when he raised enough money, then we would go back and live in Jordan again for a good while and then rotate back and forth. But uh, I was raised to pretty much bleed Razorback, and everything I knew in the United States was all tied to farming. It was 100% because that's who I knew, the people. And, and as y'all know, when you're in Phillips County or really any county in the Delta on either side of the river, that's what there is. And in a sense, it becomes ingrained in you, whether you know what's going on inside those fields or, or you're outside the turn row either way. Sorry for a long-winded answer, Jason. No, absolutely you know, not. That's, that's a great answer. So in Jordan, were there other American kids with y'all, or was it just your family and, and then the local kids, or how did that work? It depended on the year, uh, the years, because there was a windows of war and conflict, and they would pull the Americans out and things like that. So certainly there were other Americans there, but when I was a kid, we weren't around any. I spoke Arabic very, very well as a little boy, and uh, we went to Arabic school. Uh, for, I don't remember, two or three years. I had to ask my mama that. Uh, we played, you know, with sheep, goats, outside shepherds. Uh, they had the, I mean, the robes on and everything like that. When very vivid memories. Every house there had a concrete wall around it. to you protected what you had from, essentially from sheep and goats and so on. And I remember as a kid, there was a uh, man and his kids lived just, you know, quarter mile away he had four huts set up four cinder block huts set up and he had a wife in each one and i don't remember i think i guess he rotated back and forth but i remember as a kid he <laughs> ran by the house one day we were outside he had his uh, robe pulled up right to his waist so you could see the whites of his thighs he had it pulled up that high and this is barefoot right this is barefoot and he's running lickety split through uh, thorns dirt, gravel, sand. I mean, he's running as fast as he can. And within a couple of seconds, behind him comes a crowd, and I mean crowd, 15, 20 guys, and they have rocks in their hands the size of softballs, and they're throwing them. And some of them are not throwing them. Some of them are trying to get gain ground on him. And what happened was he had mistreated one of those wives. I don't remember which one it was. He had apparently had mistreated one of the wives, and her family had come for him. And last time I saw him that particular day, was cutting into the horizon across those fields. And uh, he, he came back after a day or two. But that kind of thing, it was pretty dang normal in the early 70s. What you'd, uh, what, what you'd see is pretty wild. We didn't have hardly any, any water. Remember, there was a tank on top of our house, which was made out of, I guess, kind of cinder blocky and made out of limestone blocks. And then on top was a tank, and they would come and fill the tank once a month with a little bit of water. And that's what you got. So... Pretty much when I was a kid, I remember taking a bath, like an inch of water in the bathtub, and my uh, parents would uh, go and bribe the water man when water ran out, try and get some more water. Uh, sorry to be kind of rambling in my description, but that's the way the memory is in my head. You just see snapshots of what once was. But again, to emphasize, because the place hadn't exploded, they hadn't pumped all the foreign money into the area, again, we lived kind of out, and that tended to get a grip on me. So did you graduate from high school in the States then? 
I did. We came back when I was, uh, we were coming back all the time, but came back permanent for me, not for my parents. Came back, I think, when I was in uh, 10th, 11th grade, and I had so many dang credits, was able to graduate in 11th grade, nothing to do with my intellect, and then I went and got that uh, history degree thinking I wanted to teach history, and I did for five years maybe at DeSoto. Y'all probably know DeSoto and Helena, I taught there, and progressed uh, into farming, which I'll, I'll tell you all about, but but from there. Graduated from Missouri State with a history degree, and then you taught history. Right. Then where does that lead you from there? I was desperate kind of in, inside to want to write. Uh, I wanted to write. I wanted to tell stories. And I, I suppose most people, when they're like that, they tend to uh, gravitate toward what they know. And what I knew, the stories that I knew were there in agriculture. And the people I knew were in agriculture. So even when I was teaching, I mean, you're teaching literally uh, farm kids. And I lived outside of town on fields and spent my days hunting arrowheads and so on. So I knew in my core that that's what I needed to do. And, and eventually I had applied to Farm Press, got turned down. I had to turn me down too, Farm Press in Clarksdale. And I think I ended up <laughs> applying there. It's a lesson for anybody listening. I think I applied there four times over the next several years. And that fourth time it hit and I got a desk job working for the California uh, branch segment of Farm Press Desperately, again, wanting to write, but I knew I had to, maybe I had to pay my dues, you might say. So that's what I did. A desk man fixing somebody else's copy, waiting for a chance to get up to the plate. Any of our young listeners might need to be reminded that if at first you don't succeed, just keep trying. If it's meant to be, that's what's going to happen. I think that's probably happened to all of us in the room at one point or another. And a lot of that just is, it's determination, passion, drive. And that's, I think, something we're lacking in today's society at this point. That's right. I agree, Tom. No excuses for me. I was turned down every time because more than likely I should have been turned down. And maybe they shouldn't have taken me the fourth time. But, uh, you know, when you get to the plate and you take your cuts and you strike out, and you go sit back down on the bench, and you lick your wounds, and you get back up, and you're ready to swing again once you get to the plate. I have kids like y'all do. Those are the kind of lessons I try to emphasize to them because uh, if you can't handle that, you just wind up like, I don't know, some of these uh, spineless people we see in cancel culture. Well, I think for every story of – Somebody that just seems like they back their way into whatever great fortune. There's five stories or ten stories or however many of people that just got up and grinded like Chris is describing, like you described, Tom, when we talked about the circular route you took to get to Stoneville. I think, and this is just Tom's personal opinion, but you'll become more successful in life the more failures you have because you'll end up learning something from that. The best way to put it into perspective is an undefeated team. You want your team to lose before they make it to the championship round so that they actually understand what is involved in that. That's, that's important. That's a life-changing event in most cases because you build from that. You see the mistake you made, and move forward from that and correct the issue that you had. You're sitting in the office fixing other people's copy. 
how does your career evolve from there? I worked with some wonderful, wonderful people in Farm Press. Best writer I've ever come across in my life was a gentleman who has since passed on named Henry Brandon. I know that name is highly familiar to y'all, and it will be for some of your listeners as well. Best I've ever seen in my life. I sometimes, I didn't work on his segment of the paper, but I did have to correct his copy sometimes, and there was no correction. But he was like uh, Amadeus. He laid it out beforehand, and uh, if, if you caught an error of his, you'd done something. That's how good he was. Plus, his copy was just eminently readable outrageous anyhow i wanted to write didn't open up for me a writing job out in the field writing it didn't open up for me and farm journal which is actually headquartered out of uh, mexico missouri that's kind of in north central missouri they uh, told me i didn't have to move north they said i could stay in the south they don't have anybody else in the south and they told me i could write and so i, I jumped on it and it was the uh, uh, best choice I ever made, even though I walked away from, from some really fine, fine people that I still miss today at Farm Press. When you went to work for Farm Journal, Chris, what was your assignment? Or <laughs> I'm, pro- I'm probably like some of y'all, or at least some of the people that you know. Uh, they hired me and said, hey, you know, what, uh, what kind of title? They, they're trying to make up a title. I, can't, I honestly don't even remember the title that I was given. But then they said, well, what about technology and issues editor, something like that? I said, if that's what y'all want to put on my back, that's fine. But if you just want to put a guy that works for y'all or a writer, what have you, that's also fine. So, so the, technically, I am the technology and issues editor for Farm Journal. But you just wanted your foot in the door. I mean, just give me a shovel and put me in a ditch. It's where I belong. No ifs, ands, buts about it and don't need any fancy titles on the door. As y'all know, most people most people do, but uh, when you get down to brass tacks, it's, it's what you produce. I caught a crazy wave. Uh, y'all know all about this. Uh, over the last 10 years, the Internet has taken control of publications, of all media. There was a time in the 90s, I guess, when you could say that the chemicals came on strong that any farm publication, and I'm just talking generically here, I'm not, certainly not talking about Farm Press or Farm Journal, any of them, you could, you could publish anything. And the advertising dollars were suddenly there as they had never, ever been. <laughs> yeah, I used to write for Farm Press for, I don't know, two or three years. So, yeah, they would take anything. <laughs> he did because he would send me things to edit. And it's kind yeah. of like dealing with something from Hembry. There were not a lot of things that you'd be correcting. Well, you may have dozed <laughs> off and hit the wrong key at one point. Well, you know, Chris mentioned it. The internet, and that was before our Mississippi Crop Situation blog, right. really, when it was still a newsletter. So Ken Smith, who worked for the University of Arkansas for a long time, he was a weed scientist. He got me and him and Larry Steckle. I don't remember if there was a fourth one or not, but we would rotate. Ken would do one, then I would do one, then Larry would do one. we just kind of rotate through. And then when our blog got big, we kind of started airing that way and, and moved away from sending well, stuff to the farm press. What you just said is, is, is uh, prescient because it echoes exactly what I was going to say, and that is that uh, the media changed to an extreme, an extreme change. It doesn't look like it once did. And what I mean by that is now what sells 
on a farm website is essentially you either running a headline or you're running an in-depth story. Everything else in between is uh, essentially a, a zero. And the reason why, partially a part of the reason why, is that uh, places like Mississippi State Extension, for example, have other means to get their information out. So they may have their own email newsletters. They have their own Twitter. I, I, I could go on and on. Well, it's not just Mississippi State Extension. It's the entire agriculture industry. So again, what you're left with on most farming websites is a headline or an in-depth story. And yes, you will find some of that other stuff on the sites, but everyone knows no one reads that, right? They've already got the material possibly right from y'all's pocket. I mean, they might have picked it up right from one of y'all's Twitters, for example. So when you get down to to bare bones, it has created a new dynamic in agriculture media where everyone knows ag media has taken, I'm talking about the print, has taken a severe beating over the last 10 years. A lot of the advertising dollars have fled. And what's going to develop on the net now, I, I, I don't really know. But again, I'll emphasize there's two things that still have power. And that is you either get the headline first or you tell an in-depth story. And uh, unique thing about farming, and, and certainly what pulled me in, and I know it's pulled in others in the industry, is that farming has a it's it's woven into who we are as Americans. It doesn't matter if you own two acres or if you own two thousand. Doesn't matter if you farm or not, because your papa probably did. Everything that we have today as Americans is somehow related to farming. You can't even go back and understand what happened in the Civil War with soldiers without understanding farming. I'm not even talking about cotton and slavery and so on. I'm talking about when you have the vast majority of individuals on a battlefield that came off of farmland. And when they, if they survive, they are returning to farmland. So our forefathers all came out of that element. And, and another one about agriculture is just, phenom- just phenomenal. And, and y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. It's primal, right? It goes to the core. Ever since Adam and Eve got tossed out of the garden, someone's been poking a hole with a stick in the ground, dropping in a seed. Again, somehow, someway, it is primal. There's a, and there's a third factor, which is just, again, you could write books or spend multiple podcasts on it, and that is that the vast majority of people at all levels of the agriculture industry, but particularly the people in the fields, are decent people. You go into other professions, and I would submit that you don't find that level of decent people as you do in farming. I'm not sure. I'm personally not sure why that is. I think it's partially to do with the background that's come out since mechanization in the 1930s, but you find decent people, you find patriots, you find good, wholesome individuals. Yes, you're going to have your thugs, you're going to have your, your bad apples, you have that in any industry. But again, let me emphasize, the vast majority of people that you come across in farming, they, they are fine Americans. I'm going to stick my neck out a little bit, but headlines are in-depth stories. I kind of know where you're going with that because <laughs> I know the kind of stuff that you write because, <laughs> because I read them. So tell folks how you got involved doing the in-depth story part. Jason, have you ever seen a celebrity being interviewed? Of course you have. Tom, have you ever seen a celebrity being interviewed and you see 10 people standing around with a mic pressed up to their face? 
and they're giving the interview, and then everyone runs around, runs away like a herd of buffalo to reach their keyboards and pump out whatever that individual just said. Well, that's a nightmare to me. I don't have the ability, I don't have the speed to do headlines. I'm not, I'm not well versed in any segment of agriculture. When, when, I, when I listen to one of y'all speak, right, I'm, I'm absolutely mesmerized. And, and when y'all go into the technicalities, the science behind what you do in crops, in weeds, in insects, it, it blows me away. I hang there. Look, I know what I'm talking about in this regard, and that is that farming stories are there on top of the ground. If I walk onto a farm, we are, we, we're, we're at Stoneville right now. Y'all could walk me onto any farm out here within the vicinity, and I would submit to you there are seven to ten stories there on the surface. Right? Not that I have to dig. They're laying there on the surface. Now, it doesn't always mean that the farmer involved recognizes that he has seven to ten stories atop his ground, but they are there. And the unique thing about farming media, and it's a little insane, is that these stories are almost not covered. In other words, I don't know, 98, 99% of agriculture media coverage is on the herd stories or on the headlines. Or just clickbait. Clickbait. (laughs) There's a trove. And whether you want to say, well, does that involve history? Does that involve crime? Does that involve the worth of individuals? Yes, yes, it does. It involves all of those things. Now, it, 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 you know, if you go in, want to wade into one of those stories, there are tons of landmines out there. But I assure you, there is a, a, a rich layer, nuanced, multi-layered cake of stories. And if any, any of your listeners are out there, and, and maybe they're young or they have someone young in their family that might be inclined to be in agriculture media, I can tell you all straight up, it is the Wild West out there of stories waiting to be told. And I'll say that again, waiting to be told. Well, I think it just takes somebody that's passionate about it and has an understanding and wants to learn because I, I oftentimes say, and I say to Jason all the time, I, I, I learn something new out here almost every day, at least every week. And that's, I'll never feel like I know everything about agriculture and the part about being tied to the land and passionate, the history, all of that is woven together. And then you can even go further in the fact that we all attend church and we all go to church with people that farm. And I think that intrinsically just becomes a larger family for all of us. And that's how we all get to know one another and exchange ideas and information and tell those stories because that's important moving forward. And then, of course, just continuing to attract young people to this profession. I'm laughing, Tom, because I was thinking about stories that I've told you over the years that I don't even know now if I was even there. Uh, you know, just, well, whether it's a story my daddy told me or my papa told me or my granddaddy, because both of my grandfathers were farmers. Some of them are obvious because I wasn't born yet, but some of the ones that have happened in my lifetime, I may have been there, but I may not have been. I just heard it or told it so many times that it's just real. But I agree with you 100%, Chris. The stories are there, and it's just a matter of somebody capturing them and getting them down. Jason, in a way, it's formulaic because 
uh, farm is in many senses, even today, 2022, it is, it functions the same as it did in 1925. And what I mean by that is you have an island, right? So if you're on 500 acres or maybe you're on 5,000 acres, you exist in a sense on an island. And particularly if that island is housed by multi-generation families, then you are naturally going to breed phenomenal stories because there's almost no other professions uh, like that. If your daddy was an accountant and you become an accountant and the third child becomes an accountant, that's very rare. You could say that for almost all professions. But again, in farming, you have that torch that's often passed down through the families. So it's a recipe for those stories to be formed. And just like biology on an island, if you're on an island in the Pacific or the Indian Ocean, you can go on and look at the biology on that piece of ground. You can look at the animals, the plants. They are unique because they've gone through the process of isolation and development. Same thing on the farm. So if I'm on a farm in Phillips County and a guy has a wacky story or a noteworthy story, if I move on to the farm and stay in the county, but I just cross his borderline and go to the next guy's line over the turn or over the ditch, there's going to be an entirely unique formula uh, unto itself. So in other words, the process never stops. And again, I want to emphasize, that's all without digging. That's on top of the ground. Chris, so obviously you have a specific area that you like to, to stay within when it comes to ag journalism. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, Tom. Most of my stories will be on an individual, and that could be for a, a good, bad, or crazy reason. They'll be possibly on government regulation, government malfeasance. If, if someone gets uh, brushed over by NRCS, I, I, I want to tell that story because uh, the, the, the amount of farmers that get rolled and you never hear the story, they have to settle or what have you, those people are, are often desperate, and it's always a privilege to go hear that. Uh, ag crime. Ag crime is one of the most nuanced crimes out there because of the uh, almost like a Cohen Brothers feel to it. You still got the handshake element to agriculture, and that hurts and hinders both regarding ag crime. And then uh, wildlife. Tom, if it's a wildlife story on a farm, again, those can be insane, and I'm, I'm leaving out a lot of stuff, but I suppose if it's off the beaten path, if it's wacky, then, then I, I want the uh, privilege to uh, tell it, the honor to tell it. Now, how about any tips for anyone that might be listening, any of our younger listeners or somebody who might get a hold of this that might think that they would explore that opportunity or potential opportunity for ag journalism? you have any specific tips for them, Chris? Yes, or? sir. I sure do, Tom. If you want to write on farming, there's a space for you. You know, you got to sober up and recognize it's not going to be any money involved for you. But if that's what you want to do, and I can tell you straight up, it's a wonderful profession. And uh, when I'm on a story, I'm like a bulldog on a bone. It's, it's all, you can feel the drugs in your system. If someone wants to do that, then I would uh, tell them to take, uh, write a story on their own. I don't care if you're 16, if you're 18, write a story on your own about a farm or a farm-related topic and take that story and give that to someone that you respect 
and ask them to rip you apart. And once they rip you apart, take that same story and give it to someone higher up the chain, someone who writes for an ag magazine or whatever, and ask them to brutalize you. And then do it again and again. And you will hone yourself like a knife on a soapstone. And the other piece of advice I would give is that when someone speaks with you, Tom, someone speaks with someone like Jason, that if you interview them, if you're invited, you don't pretend. Always approach someone from a position of ignorance. When I first started my career in agriculture writing, I made the mistake because of my ego of wanting to approach people like yourselves who I'm asking to speak to me, but I wanted to impress you with what I knew. Hopefully, as someone matures, they get over that. But I would tell somebody young, hey, admit what you don't know and turn your writing over to be hammered by somebody else. That way you can put it on the anvil and get it hammered into shape. Man, that's awesome, Chris. I didn't know what to expect, but I knew it wasn't going to disappoint. <laughs> and you absolutely <laughs> didn't disappoint, man. Thank you so much. Let me tell you uh, something. It's a privilege to be on here with y'all. Uh, we all know that we are nothing. I mean nothing but your reputation at, at the day's end. And I can tell both of y'all, I know that y'all what y'all's reputation is out there in the fields and with the farmers. And it uh, precedes you. And it's it's an absolute honor to be on here with two gentlemen like yourself. We, we appreciate you saying that. That's, that's something my father's always tried to impress upon me, that when you walk out the office at the end of the day, what you carry home is your reputation. That's That's it, period. Nothing else that you have with you. And I think that's something we don't do a good job talking about. And certainly, I hope that's something we teach our kids moving forward. Well, again, Chris, thank you for your time. We, we went a little long, longer than we normally do, but I think it was well worth it. And then, of course, you made the drive uh, to here to meet with us. So certainly appreciate that. You know, for those of you listening, I hope you stayed till the end. And, and we really appreciate all the support that we get for our podcast. As always, if we can do anything for you, just give us a call. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.